Well, the reading is from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, reading from verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thanks, Roger. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the work of your kingdom. Thank you for the encouragement that we've already heard from Malcolm and Carrie of believers in Muslim countries that are not ashamed of the name of Jesus and despite what it costs, are willing to follow Christ. Lord, we're humbled when we hear stories like this in the face of persecution where people are still willing to put their trust in Jesus, no matter what the cost is. And as we reflect this morning on our own discipleship, on our own followership of Jesus, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might speak to us, that we might hear your voice speaking deep within our souls and our spirits. That as Paul prayed for the church in Corinth, we too might do what is right. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we reach the conclusion of our series looking through 2 Corinthians, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, where he's been telling them and encouraging them and testing them in response to the situation that he found in this church in Corinth that was not a great one. If you read Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, followed by the second letter, which may consist of his second and third letters, it's not a great place to be a Christian. And the Corinthian church is not a great church. They think they are. They think they're fantastic. 
But the reality Paul is trying to communicate to them is somewhat different. There's always that moment when there's that disparity that's realized between the image that some people project or think of themselves with and then the reality. It seems that every month there is another scandal involving a church leader. Scandal follows scandal follows scandal follows scandal. In the last month, there have been three fairly high-profile ones. Um, Brian Houston, sadly, who uh, led Hillsong Church in Australia and all the churches around the world, he's been forced to step back uh, because of allegations of inappropriate behavior. The guy in the middle is a guy called Bruxy Cavey, and uh, he led a church called The Meeting House in Canada, and he's been forced to resign because it's been discovered that he was having an affair. In the UK, Mike Andrea, who is the guy on uh, that side, um, he leads a church called Global Generation Church in Kent, and was recently appointed the international team leader of 24-7 prayer, and he's been asked to step down because of inappropriate behavior and allegations against him. And these follow very quickly on allegations that have been made about Bill Hybels at Willow Creek in Chicago and revelations after he died about the evangelist Ravi Zacharias. It seems that no part of the church is exempt from senior leaders falling at some point or another. They might be Roman Catholic cardinals, they might be Anglican bishops, they might be megachurch pastors in America or Australia or Canada or New Zealand or even here in the UK. Nobody is exempt. And all the leaders who've had to resign to big headlines over the past few years had one thing in common. In the world's eyes, they were successful. They were pastors to thousands of people. Their social media platforms had thousands, if not millions, of followers. People thought they were fantastic. They were creators of brands and churches that were popular. The only problem is that God's criteria for success in leadership are slightly different. God's success criteria, if you like, are not how many followers you have on social media but it's whether you're willing through humility to invest in the lives of other people. I think when Malcolm and Carrie get to heaven, and hopefully it won't be for a while, but I think you will get the words of well done good and faithful servants after 32 years of ministry, which has not hit the headlines, which began before Laura, our keyboard player, was even born, she told me. She said, 1990, I had five years yet before I was born. But it's incredibly humbling to be able to stand alongside you in your ministry and to see what God has done in you and through you in the predominantly Muslim world. Because God's criteria when it comes down to leadership are not popularity. It's not how many followers you have on social media. But it's things like character. It's things like humility. It's things like Christ-likeness. Those are the criteria that God seems to value as you look through the Old and New Testaments. The problem in the church is that often we appoint on competency, 
but people lose jobs because of character. We appoint on competency, but people lose jobs because of character. And as we've looked over the past few weeks, this church in Corinth had been very doubtful about both the credentials and the character of the Apostle Paul. They'd been influenced by these so-called super-apostles who'd come to Corinth after Paul and basically who'd said, well, Paul doesn't really count. He's not really spiritual. We're the spiritual ones. We're the super-apostles. We can do signs. We can do wonders. We can do miracles. And we're much better than the Apostle Paul. And this had led to a quite fractious relationship between the Apostle Paul who planted the church in Corinth and the church in Corinth itself. And so this is called a letter of tears as Paul writes to them again and again, trying to persuade them about his own credentials, but also to ignore the teachings of these so-called super-apostles. You see, what these so-called super-apostles taught were two or three things. Firstly, that as long as you were having spiritual experiences, it didn't matter what you did in the rest of your life. As long as you prayed the right prayers, as long as you spoke with the gift of speaking in tongues, as long as you saw signs and miracles and wonders, then it didn't actually matter what you did in the rest of your life. And Paul is writing all the way through 1 and 2 Corinthians to try and correct these false teachings that have arisen from these so-called super-apostles. And all the way through, he's saying to them, it does matter what you do in the rest of your life. Because the whole point of following Christ is about who you're becoming. It's about who you are. It's about the fact that you should be becoming more like Jesus, irrespective of the spiritual experiences that you do or don't have. And so he's been outlining to them, writing this letter, in preparation for what is his third visit to them. A visit when he hopes to collect the money that they promised to the church in Jerusalem a year before, which they hadn't delivered, they hadn't given that money. But also a third visit where hopefully he will be reconciled to the church in Corinth. But he doesn't mince his words. So at the start of chapter 13, he says, this will be my third visit to you. And then he quotes some verses from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. And what Paul is saying is, remember how it was in the Old Testament. God said through Moses and Deuteronomy, that if you have a dispute amongst you, then there should be two or three witnesses that are able to corroborate the charge. Jesus underlines it in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18 and says, if you've got a dispute amongst you, if you've got a complaint against somebody else, then you must bring two or three witnesses. You can't just have your word against somebody else's. And Paul says, I'm going to bring, if needs be, two or three witnesses. And he probably has people in mind. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he mentions Timothy, Titus, and Sosthenes. In the rest of 2 Corinthians, he refers to Aquila and Priscilla, a married couple who'd help him to plant the church in Corinth. And he might even have in mind those brothers that we looked at a few weeks ago. And he says, I'm going to bring to you a test. You've been asking about my credentials... And what Paul now does is he flips it. 
because he's so worried about the church in Corinth. In First and Second Corinthians, he raises the issues that he's concerned about. In the previous chapter, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he lists the things that he's worried about. That the church in Corinth is full of quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, sexual sin, and debauchery. Maybe you've heard people say, I wish we could be a New Testament church. That is what Paul is describing as the New Testament church. Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, sexual sin, and debauchery. But worse than that, having called out these sins, these people are refusing to repent. Now, please listen very carefully to what Paul is saying. He's not saying that if you do these things, you can't be in the church. He's not saying that. Paul is not saying that church is for good, nice people. There was a church in America that did have, and I think it's still on their website, they had a sign that said, no perfect people allowed. And that's a really good sign to have outside a church. Because none of us are perfect. If you look at the person on your left and right, just try it now. You are looking at somebody who is imperfect. Don't tell them how they are imperfect, but you are looking at people who are imperfect. You're looking at someone, I know, impossible though it may be to believe, but you're looking at someone who is imperfect. We are all imperfect. Paul is not saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christ follower, to be a member of a church. But what Paul is saying is this. If you are sinning, and all of us do, you cannot remain in that state. That there is a direct correlation between your standing in Christ and how you lead your life if you refuse to repent. You see, Paul had pointed out the things that was going wrong in the church in Corinth, the quarreling, the factions, the jealousy, the anger, the sexual immorality, all the ways in which they were failing as individual Christians, the super apostle said, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As long as you turn up on a Sunday, and as long as you sing the right songs and pray the right prayers and do the right things at the right time in the right way, as long as you're having these spiritual experiences, then it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life. And Paul says it does matter. It does matter. There should be a correlation between how you live your life and your faith in Jesus Christ. So that if you fall, if you do sin, you have to acknowledge it. You have to call it for what it is. And you have to repent. You have to turn 180 degrees around and ask for forgiveness in Jesus. It's not that Jesus can't forgive you. It's not that Jesus won't forgive you. But he's waiting for you to acknowledge it and bring that sin before him. It's not good enough to say that it doesn't matter. And Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, it does matter. And he flips it back to them. He says, you want to test my credentials. You want to see if I'm really an apostle. 
You want to see if I am the person that I claim to be. Well, I'm going to flip it round. And Paul says in chapter 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You've been testing me, Paul says, but now I want you to test yourselves. Are you really following Christ? Is Christ in you? It's the only place in the New Testament where this question is asked. The only place in the New Testament where this question is asked. Are you in Christ? Do you pass the test? And the tests are not how many spiritual experiences are you having. The tests are not how many people are following you on social media. The tests are something else. The tests are, are you becoming more like Jesus? It's the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, more evident in your life. Is there more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life now than there was a month ago or a year ago? If you were to ask, if I were to ask the people that know me well, would they say, Dave is more patient than he was a year ago? Would they say, Mark is more gentle than he was a year ago? Would they say, Libby is more self-controlled than she was a year ago? I didn't, I just picked it at random. As the Holy Spirit led me. If you feel it speaks to you, then just take that as inner conviction. But you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, do you pass the test? Do you pass the test that Jesus is actually at work in your life? Now, Christians down the ages, and particularly if we're honest in Scotland... Um, fall between two extremes. One is to say, well, of course I'm in Jesus, so how I live doesn't matter. You know, sin should increase that grace abounds. Or, and this is a particularly Scottish trait, oh, I'm so sinful, therefore I can't be a real Christian. Because if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be sinning. And Paul says, no, that it's not either extreme. It's, it's just recognizing what sin is, but also recognizing what grace and forgiveness make possible. All of us sin, but is the character of Jesus being made, being seen in your life and my life? Just as Muslims uh, use Ramadan to get closer to God, Lent is the time for Christians when we're supposed to reflect on how we're doing in our relationship with Jesus. Lent is the time when we're supposed to put off things in order that we focus on our relationship with Jesus. And that's when we think about things like spiritual disciplines and spiritual exercises and how are we doing in our own particular relationship with God. 
We use this time of self-reflection and self-examination to say, well, am I becoming more like Jesus? Is it evident to the people around me that I'm becoming more like Christ? I love the way in which a church in Tokyo has started to help people with spiritual disciplines and exercises. It's called the Church of Joy in Tokyo. Strangely, I can't find a church called that in Scotland. Um, but they teach something called, they call the Big Three. And they, 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 they teach people these three exercises or spiritual disciplines even before they become Christians. So firstly, they teach the idea of journaling. What is God saying to you? And they encourage people, even they be, before they become Christians, to start to read the Bible, to start to read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, and to be able to say each day what God has said to them that day, and to write it down, and to journal what they think God is saying to them. Then they start to teach people to pray, a bit like try praying, which you'll see everywhere at the railway stations on, and on buses at the moment. But they say to people, even before they become Christians, why don't you try praying? Why don't you start to pray just a bit of the Lord's Prayer, our Father? Think about what it means to call God Father and to start to pray really simple prayers even before you become a Christian. So journaling and simple prayer and then forgiveness. To get in the habit at the end of every day as you're lying in bed to ask yourself this question, who or what do I need to let go of? And what they're doing is teaching three ancient spiritual disciplines of the church, Lectio Divina, prayer, and the principle or, or the discipline of examine, where you, you let go and forgive people and stuff that's come to you during the course of the day. And this church is now 10 or 12,000 people strong in Tokyo. But they're teaching people this, and this is for you, Carrie, they're teaching it through vlogs on mobile phones. So the senior pastor does three vlogs each week which go out to the congregation and another three vlogs that go to their equivalent of connect leaders. And they've created this culture over the last 10 years or so because they recognize that in Tokyo, people won't come for midweek meetings. They do all their discipleship by mobile phone. So when people are commuting into Tokyo, they're doing the equivalent of the Alpha course on their phone. When they become a Christian and they join the church, they do the equivalent of a membership class on their phone. And they get in this habit, this culture of these three spiritual disciplines of journaling, simple prayer, and forgiveness that now has permeated the whole church. And they use them to test themselves. Am I becoming more like Jesus? It's really important that every now and again we ask ourselves those sorts of questions. I was so struck last Sunday evening when Josh Gilbert was preaching, and he, he got to this moment where he just said, what is the weakness in your life that God wants to use now? And he made a stop for about two minutes. 
And just to reflect, because all the way through 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying that he's weak and that Christ's strength is made perfect in weakness. And Josh just asked us this question, what is the weakness in your life now that you think God might want to speak through and use that you might become more like Jesus? What is the weakness in your life now that God might want to speak through and use in your life? And then secondly, Paul prays for these Christians in Corinth. He has a sort of love-hate relationship with the church in Corinth, but the one thing about Paul is that he prays for them. And he prays two main things in verses 7 to 9. Firstly, in verse 7, he says very simply, I pray that you will not do anything wrong. It's never a bad prayer. I pray that you will not do anything wrong. There's actually a bit more to it, because in the Greek-Roman world, the idea of choosing to do the right thing was huge in Greek and Roman culture. Ethics was really important. Doing the right thing, living life the right way, way. And again, it's a counter to these super apostles that say that as long as you sing the right songs, as long as you're having these spiritual experiences, it doesn't matter. I love the definition of discipleship that I heard a couple of weeks ago. Someone, a church leader, summed it up as this. He said, it's about loving God with your head, your heart, and your hands, and then living it out with your head, your heart, and your hands. It's about loving God with your head, your heart, and your hands, and then living it out with your head, your heart, and your hands. So Paul prays that they won't do anything wrong, and then in verse 9 he says this, I pray that you might be fully restored. And the word that Paul uses is a word that is particular to the New Testament. It's a Greek word, katartitso, And it's the idea in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, when Jesus is beginning to call his first disciples. And we're told that he comes across different brothers called James and John. And they're mending their nets. And the word that's used to mend their nets is exactly the same word that Paul uses here for restored. It's about mending. It's about restoring. It's about disentangling. It's about remaking. It's about re-sewing. It's about re-knitting. And it's a word that's used to describe not just the nets in Mark's gospel, but what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life. He wants to katartizo us. He wants to restore us. He wants to knit us back together. He wants to disentangle us. He wants to take away the knots. He wants to to mend the holes. He wants to make us how we should be. And that's the process of restoration. See, it's not just about the character of Jesus being formed more fully in us as the fruit of the Spirit comes out in our lives, but it's about 
God actually restoring us, restoring our character, restoring our souls, restoring our spirits, renewing our minds in order that we become the people that God always intended us to be, being put back together. The literal translation is being put thoroughly in order. That's what God wants to do in your life and my life. He wants to put us thoroughly back into order through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then through the work of the Spirit. Christianity is not about behavior correction, and neither is it simply about sin management. It's about restoring and recreating the image of God within us as the Spirit of God lives in us and works in us. And that's Paul's prayer for these Christians in Corinth. He prays that they will do the right thing. He prays for full restoration. He prays that they will be a church that encourages each other, that's united in mind and purpose, that lives in peace with each other, and that they will pass the test of self-examination. Is Christ living in them? Are they becoming more like Jesus? Can they witness the work of restoration, of renewal, of being restored thoroughly to what God has always intended them to be? Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that if we ask ourselves that question, would you help us to reflect on whether we would pass that test? Very simply, are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we living life the right way? Are we doing the right things? And are we allowing you to put us back together thoroughly and in order? And as we approach Easter once more, Lord, would you bring us back to the foot of the cross to know that we can be forgiven and to know that same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us, that the character of Jesus might be formed more fully in us and that the lives that we live might be the lives that you have longed for us to live even from before the beginning of time itself. In Jesus' name.